You're listening to Meaningful, a podcast about people who give a damn and do something about it. My name is Sofia Born, and on the show I share stories of people who advance social change in their day-to-day lives to explore how they build meaningful lives and careers on their own terms. My guest today is Nadia Khan, a policy researcher, mental health activist, and co-founder of The Delicate Mind, or Nazak Sain in Urdu, a social enterprise set up to respond to the harmful effects of social stigma around mental health within the South Asian community in the UK. My inspiration to set up The Delicate Mind really stemmed from my own personal experiences in dealing with mental health and exploring the relationship between mental health, faith, and identity. Um, I witnessed firsthand the role that austerity and anti-Muslim sentiment and media misrepresentation of Muslims has affected not just myself, but also members of the South Asian community. I had a friend of mine whose brother uh, sadly committed suicide uh, last year, which, you know, sparked both of our interests in wanting to raise awareness about this topic. I know a lot of young Muslims who struggle with their mental health, uh, mental health because of the factors that I spoke about. But within the South Asian community, the topic of mental health is still very much taboo. So from my experience within faith-based communities, it's misunderstood. For example, that isn't even a word for mental health in Urdu or Hindi, uh, which are some of the languages I speak. Uh, when it comes to mental health, the words that are normally associated with people living with mental health condition is something like fagal or fagal, which basically translates as crazy. And they carry such negative connotations. So I think what happens is you've got this lack of understanding between individuals and their loved ones. And then we end up in a situation where some Muslims who are like hardest hit by austerity, disenfranchised on a socioeconomic level, misrepresented regularly in the media, are in an environment which perpetuates Islamophobia, can't even talk to their parents about mental health. And that made me really want to do something about this and to tackle these issues through the delicate mind. Can you talk more about the attitudes towards mental health within your community? This issue of having an illness, such as a mental health illness, mental health is classed as a uh, disability. So within the South Asian community, generally speaking, um, having a disability, it puts you at the lower end of this sort of hierarchy, hierarchical system which exists. It puts you at the bottom and, you you know, your chances of success are very low. And in this community, in order to get respect and in order to um, be someone, you need to you need to be able to, you know, not have a disability. You need to be able to be wealthy. You need to have a successful marriage. You need to have a good education. But if you're dealing with mental health, this does affect the relationships that you have. This does affect your academic capabilities. And it also affects your um, your status in society. So, for example, there is this big emphasis on needing to get married and to be to be basically like the perfect candidate to to get married. And if you are somebody who is known to have a condition, a mental health condition like depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder, this will affect the way people see your family. And that's when it becomes such a taboo issue. So the family are then in denial about their child having this condition. And then they, the child is, you know, are constantly told, you don't have this problem. It's all in your head. And then they're also then told by some faith leaders, actually, you've just got this, it's a spiritual deficit. It's a spiritual deficit and you've got an issue with um, bad spirits and it's black magic. So the families start believing 
the faith leaders who are giving the wrong information and go about trying to cure their their child it's a very very big complex issue within this community and it needs to change and mental health needs to be seen as it's a health issue and it can be treated if we try to understand it and if we move away from this idea that somehow having a mental health issue puts you at the the lowest part of your community because it's going to affect your life chances to that level maybe if we actually understood it and tried to help people then it wouldn't affect them in that way attitudes and misconceptions around mental health affect men and women in different ways. In her work, Nadia puts a special focus on men and boys who have a harder time opening up about mental health issues and a more limited access to support and resources due to prevailing ideas of masculinity. With women, there are many organizations within the South Asian community and also within the Muslim community at large within the UK that support women and it's genuinely more accepted that women are more emotional in my community that's that's the idea so it's accepted that they can talk about these issues such as postnatal depression anxiety um, bipolar disorder that's okay within their realm but when it comes to men those conversations simply do not exist within the faith-based communities um it's still seen as a sort of feminine topic and mental health doesn't have a gender mental health affects everyone mental health doesn't have an age group that it affects disproportionately more than another group so why is it that you know we're shying away from having these conversations with men this idea it's is still very much you know uh, rooted in our ideas of gender roles and our ideas of how women are and how men are to tackle these issues nadia co-founded the delicate mind At the core of their work is outreach to faith leaders in the Muslim community in order to train them to deal with mental health as a health issue and help them understand the different factors that affect the mental health of young people in the South Asian community. So we talk about the issue of media misrepresentation, we talk about Islamophobia, we talk about this idea of toxic masculinity and why this needs to be addressed through sermons so i uh, liaise a lot with imams and i ask them and i you know lobby them to deliver sermons about why toxic masculinity is such a big problem and how that affects mental health um how that affects relationships between parents and children so we, we know that there are a lot of children that we work with who suffer from um mental health issues but they're not able to talk to their parents a lot of the time for example girls are not able to talk to their fathers and similarly neither are boys because this idea of the the man he needs to be strong and you know he cannot talk about his emotions is so deep rooted within the south asian uh family model so we get them to talk about these um the interconnectedness of these topics through sermons and we also invite them along to our workshops to face come face to face with young people to sit down and understand what is it that young people in the south asian community in the uk are struggling with and how can they as faith leaders shape the ideas of uh, influential people in the community and parents to better understand these issues so we can have healthier conversations and healthier relationships based on you know mental health 
The Delicate Mind have seen a largely positive reception in the communities they work with, but they have also faced some important obstacles in getting their message across to all parts of the community. As we are quite young, sometimes um, there is that idea of, you know, we're older than you, we've had a lot of experience in the community, we, we know more than you. And another challenge that we've also faced is there's this uh, generational disconnect. So some of the faith leaders that we work with haven't grown up in the UK and they have uh, come here at a later stage in their life. So their lived experience of race, their lived experiences of um, mental health are very different. and. They haven't experienced that Islamophobia that some of these young people and, you know, natives from the UK have, so British South Asians have. So they struggle sometimes to understand why there would be a connection between Islamophobia, mental health and toxic masculinity. So how do you approach people who may not necessarily be open to hearing your message straight away? This is one of the main reasons why we kept the name The Delicate Mind Nazak Dane, because we want this to be an organization that is approachable, that isn't um, sort of, you know, not respecting the culture that we're from. And we need people to understand we're not here as outsiders. We're within the community trying to tackle this problem. And so speaking to faith leaders in their language, in their native language, has been such an important part of the work that we do. We make sure that there is somebody in the room that can speak to them in their language to make them understand these topics, rather than you know giving them words like Islamophobia. Some of them have no idea what that means. Some of them have no idea what socioeconomic deprivation means. So you really need to understand who you're talking to and know the many facets that make up their identity, their religion, their language, their lived experiences, and also having people that they connect with in the room. So if you're talking to a faith leader who is a male from a South Asian background, you need to make sure that you have the right uh, male there as well to have that conversation with them. Otherwise, the message is not going to get through a lot of the time. And unfortunately, that's, that is the way it is in this community. And if you want to make a change, you need to be able to have that connection with the person you're talking to. And can you talk more about building those relationships with allies who can help you deliver your message to all parts of the communities you work with? The way we've done that is through basically outsourcing the right people. So we know that there are community organizers who are amazing at what they do. They are fundraising for so many causes. They're well-respected in the community. They have a great social media following. Um, we go to those people. We go to those respected people in, um, in the community to help us to reach out to faith leaders because we know that there is that generational disconnect and we don't want to disrespect um, sort of their experiences and their knowledge. So we bring in the people that we know will be able to connect with them. And a lot of those people have been South Asian um, Muslim men who are, are progressive and who are respected by the community, who help us to forge those relationships with the faith leaders. Drawing on community assets is a key tool that the Delicate Mind team used to advance their work, and so is facilitating interfaith communication and using art therapy in community workshops that they run on a regular basis. Together, these elements contribute to a more nuanced community engagement strategy and support the sustainability of the Delicate Mind work.
we knew that it was going to be difficult to get funding just for the Muslim community because we are dealing with an ethnic minority community here and we know that. So we reached out to Near Neighbours who are a um, community church organisation and they collect uh, money from parishes across the UK to help fund community cohesion projects. And that's when the interfaith aspect came into our project, because we knew that by working with faith leaders from different backgrounds, we would increase our chances of getting funding and make this sustainable. So that's why interfaith is also a big part of what we do, because in order to you know, not only get funding, but to break down the barriers and demystify uh, mental health and really deconstruct the identity of South Asian Muslims, we need to rely on other members of the community to reach that understanding. And that's been key. So as a result of being able to get faith leaders from different backgrounds in our workshops, we're actually offered more funding. So I think from a sustainability point of view, even if you are doing something niche, even if you are tackling a niche topic um, in a specific community, it's also good to uh, not negate the other communities that you are you know, living alongside with, because actually you will find that they're more than willing to help you uh, tackle that problem in your community if you're willing to let them have a dialogue with you about this. The workshops that we run, uh, they're open to the public. We engage people in a healthy dialogue about mental health. And there's an interfaith aspect to our workshops. So we like to, you know, show the faith leaders that it's not an issue which is isolated within their own community. There's people from the Jewish community, Christian community, Sikh and Hindu communities who are also struggling with uh, mental health issues. Um, so we like to open up that conversation between faith leaders so they can share the resources and get inspiration from each other of how they can go back to their respective communities to tackle the problem. And at our workshops, we use a series of art therapy methods. So we did one um, based on calligraphy and graffiti, and we gave our participants themes. You know, what does identity mean to you? Uh, what does faith mean to you? Uh, what is what is toxic masculinity? And we got them to draw these ideas. We worked with graffiti artists, so South Asian graffiti artists, when we went to a local school, um, because we know that these methods are one of the key ways we can start to have the conversations rather than push people in to have difficult conversations about a very loaded topic such as mental health. And then we also work with spoken word and poetry artists to um, help people to better articulate these topics. So how do we articulate our issues with identity? How do we articulate our struggles with our lived experiences of mental health? So that's a prime goal of the workshops, to um, enable people to leave the workshops knowing that they are um, they're able to reach out to different members of their community, whether that's spoken word artists or uh, calligraphy artists or graffiti artists that can empower them. So it doesn't become such a taboo. It becomes almost like an art form to articulate these problems. I find it really interesting that you registered the delicate mind as a social enterprise rather than a charity or, um, you know, another type of a non-profit organization. So can you tell me more about uh, what drove the thinking be behind those decisions? So 
this is the thing. We we knew that um, if we went down the route of becoming a charity, of course, there's there's many ways that we can expand and you know become a bigger enterprise and reach out to many people. But it loses the the niche value of the organization. We're dealing with community, and we want this to be something that everyone feels like they have a a, a stake in. So registering as a social enterprise enables more people. To, from the community to have a stake in the project rather than it becoming a huge bureaucratic organization with many trustees and people who feel like they're not actually taking ownership because we want our volunteers to feel like they're playing a very important role and so are uh, so are the community organizers that we work with it's not just a case of you know trustees are at the top so we don't we didn't like that sort of hierarchical model that you would see in a charity or a non-profit. We preferred the sort of egalitarian approach that a social enterprise gives you and the amount of ownership it gives every single person who's involved in the organization. And it still keeps it small, small enough to you know, have the right, right number of people to tackle a niche topic. What do you think has been the most challenging part in setting up and growing the delicate mind? I think one of the most challenging uh, issues we've had is that there isn't much research around the topic of mental health in the South Asian Muslim community. So finding the statistics, finding the data sometimes to justify why we need to have this organization has been very, very tough. Because of the community itself not acknowledging that there's a problem, there's inconsistent data to say, this is why we need this organization. So that's been one big challenge. Another challenge uh, that we've had is we know that there's a long way to go to challenge these taboos. It's still a taboo. It's still stigmatized in the South Asian community. Simply talking about the issue to faith leaders, is, it's not enough. Because, like I said, it's about reaching out to the right faith leaders. So at our events, we need to have faith leaders who are in tune with the needs of their community and who are also trained on the issue of mental health. And there's not many of those. So that's the problem, I think. And data, inconsistent data, is it's been very, very tough. And we have to then provide that data. We have to then conduct surveys and research so that we can justify why faith leaders need to work with us and why local leaders need to work with us. The disconnect between different stakeholders in the community is another challenge that the Delicate Mind team have to cope with in their work. If there was more cooperation between schools, faith leaders and pupils, that would be instrumental in taking away the idea of you know mental health being a taboo. We really need to understand that this the way to tackle mental health in this community is through a holistic approach. That approach works really, really well to tackle any issue that is a taboo within the South Asian community. So clumping resources together and creating spaces for one another through educational, faith-based um, organizations is one of the one of the ways that we're going to achieve our goals because it gives parents the sense of trust like I'm speaking with the teachers as well as the faith leaders and so yeah actually now I can understand why my child might have this problem because these respective people in my in my society in my community are telling me that you know these various factors are affecting mental health 
rather than just doing these workshops in little bubbles and just through faith-based communities, bringing people together is is the key. Bringing the right people together that are respected by uh, members of the community is key. And what has been your favorite thing about being a part of The Delicate Mind? I think working with schools, um, going into schools and you know starting off with a bunch of uh, teenagers who are so reluctant to talk to you about anything to do with mental health, anything to do with gender roles and identity and uh, masculinity. And then towards the end of your programs with them, leaving them you know, with these ideas and ha hearing them having really sensible conversations about mental health, toxic masculinity and faith. You know, it's been inspiring because it just shows you that actually you can have these conversations with 14 and 15 year olds if you uh, engage the right people, if you engage the right people who are on a level with them, who they can connect with. And it's not a taboo. So if it's not a taboo to them, then why is it such a taboo to, you know, faith leaders? And surely if we develop the right mechanisms, we, we can also get them to have very open and honest conversations and be vulnerable about these topics. So it, it gets rid of this idea of this person is invincible in my community. Actually, they're so human as well. So having that, going to schools and, you know, really breaking down these topics and hearing young people openly talk about these uh, issues, it's been, it's been incredible. Have you always been interested in, you know, socially impactful work or um, in working with communities on social issues? Or is this something you developed as you got older? I think I've always been interested in this. So um, when I was 18, I started to uh, volunteer at the Leicester City Youth Defending Service, where I worked as a community panel member. I tried to understand why young people um, why young people commit crime and what we can do to best help them so that they stop reoffending. Um, I took a really big interest in restorative justice. And then when I moved to London, I got really engaged in really engaged in social action projects. So when I was at university, I set up a social action project called Bridget, where we looked at the media misrepresentation of people in Tower Hamlets, and we tried to humanize the people of Tower Hamlets by holding an exhibition, Humans of Tower Hamlets, sharing the amazing achievements of people from across a cross-section of the community to challenge media misrepresentation of Tower Hamlets and really shed light on the amazing work that this community does to tackle social issues such as homelessness, such as uh, inadequate housing and poverty. So it's, I think I've always had that interest. And it, what really drives me is seeing uh, communities misrepresented and trying to enable them to best articulate uh, you know, who they are and what they do, rather than allowing the media to constantly project these ideas of them, which are so, so far from the truth. And you only know until you actually go and speak to people and develop these relationships with people. Nadia's interest in the issues of identity and media representation of different communities was informed by her time as an international relations student at Queen Mary University of London, as well as by her family's history. So I was studying politics and religious studies and history at A-level, and I always had a keen interest in 
again, I think it's always been about the way media misrepresents certain groups within society. And I wanted to learn more about why that happens. You know, what is the reason behind that? Where are these ideas coming from? And the degree international relations really gave me an insight into post-colonial theory, which gave me my answers that I was looking for, which gave me a completely different lens in which I understand the world around me at a local level and at an international level. And also these ideas of identity, also another factor that influenced my decision to study international relations is I have quite a mixed ethnic identity as well. So my parents are from Kenya and um, they are South Asian, but we have a very, um, very different culture in the sense that we have a, a language that is made up of four different South Asian languages. And I always had this keen interest in understanding why we are we are so mixed and you know who are we mixed with and where are these ideas of culture coming from and what's influenced them and how did my my South Asian ancestors end up in in Kenya and then how did we end up here so understanding migration I think it helped me understand my identity better as well. Do you think your degree in international relations has been helpful in your work with the delicate mind? That's a really good question I think um my degree has been really helpful in setting up the delicate mind because it provided me with a lens to view the world by, which I never really used before, which I didn't even know existed. So I studied a, a module called um, Race and Racism in World Politics, where I explored this idea of race. How is it constructed? What are the many uh, sort of facets to race? Where What is the intersection between race gender and class and how has that formulated my understanding of the world how has that formulated my understanding of myself how has that formulated the understanding of my community you know doing that module and then conducting field research in Brixton interviewing people um, understanding their lived experiences of race in a post-Brexit era it shaped my uh, worldview it made me want to um, embrace who I am as in a means to tackle a social issue in my community rather than uh, relying on the government to uh, take ownership to do that. Because unfortunately, it also opened my eyes to the amount of institutional racism in this country, which has meant that we ignore these uh, issues such as mental health within my community. It's easier to label people in my community as, you know, more prone to radicalization because of their religious views, when actually 44% of uh, the people that police stopped on suspicion of terrorism were actually people that they found had a mental health issue. And that does tell you something that, you know, you need to do the digging within your community to find out what the issue is. To my usual question of what makes her life meaningful, Nadia responded that to her, living a meaningful life meant challenging the status quo. But it was her reflections on the nature of success that particularly captured my attention. Success is so subjective. It's, it's based on, I don't know, it's not success. How would I define success? Um, having inner peace is, is success. And being at peace with who you are and being at peace with your truth and living your truth, that's success to me. I'm at a stage right now in my life where I'm so comfortable with being, 
you know, an openly South Asian Muslim woman living in the UK who's been born and bred here. And for me, I'm so happy with embracing my identity. I, I really think I'm living my truth and I'm living my truth through doing good uh, work in my community and enabling other people to also live their truth when it's so hard to be Muslim at the moment and be openly Muslim. So I, I would say that means I'm successful. I think I am, yeah. Thank you for listening to Meaningful, and thank you to Nadia for sharing her story. You can find the show notes and previous episodes of this podcast at Sophia, that's S-O-F-Y-A, doeswords.com slash Meaningful. And to be notified about future episodes, please make sure you subscribe to Meaningful on your favorite podcast app. Until next time.